It's the Farmer to Farmer podcast, episode 86, and this is your host, Chris Blanchard. Brian Bates is a first-generation farmer at Bear Creek Organic Farm in Petoskey, Michigan. He and his wife, Ann Morningstar, started farming in 2014 and have rapidly grown their business to anticipated 2016 sales of $180,000. With just an acre and a half of cultivated ground, Bear Creek makes most of its money from greenhouse and high tunnel crops. And Brian breaks this down for us. We get an in-depth look at the tools that Brian uses to track wholesale and retail sales and to track those back to the enterprises they're a part of. Something that gives him insights into where he's earning most of his returns, which in turn drives his business decision-making. Bear Creek sells about half of its produce wholesale, mostly to grocery stores, and Brian shares how his work at the back end of his local natural food store informed the ways that he structured his production and marketing efforts. We also explore how Brian and Ann financed the startup of their operation and how they've used debt as a lever to both enable and to drive the rapid growth of their operation. Brian's a new grower, but he brings a lot of energy and insight to his operation, and he brought a lot to the podcast. Enjoy the show. Farmer to Farmer podcast is made possible with the generous support of Vermont Compost Company, founded by organic crop growing professionals committed to meeting the need for high quality compost and compost based living soil mixes for certified organic plant production. VermontCompost.com. The Farmer to Farmer podcast is also brought to you by your support. Whether you're donating to the show at farmer to farmer slash donate, shopping at Amazon through the link at farmer to farmer slash Amazon, or showing us your love by leaving us a review on iTunes or Stitcher, your support makes a difference. Thank you. Brian Bates, welcome to the Farmer to Farmer podcast. Thank you so much, Chris. It's great to be here. So I'd like to start, as as we almost always do, by having you just give us the lay of the land with, with your farm, with Petoskey, Michigan, with your background and, and, and just the overall situation so that we've got some basis for talking about the rest of what we're going to talk about. Yeah, sure. So I guess, you know, one of the important things to our story is it's sort of been a series of uh, serendipity or opportunistic, however you want to look at it. But I would say, um, well, first off, I'm certainly not from a farming background. That's a a relevant uh, bit of information. So I grew up in Virginia, uh, right outside of Washington, D.C., in suburbia, classic suburban, you know, childhood, cul-de-sac, the whole bit, Um, and never thought about where food came from, not even for a second. But as is so often the case, college was a transformational place for me, and I went to Penn State University, and um, I went there for landscape architecture because I was like, I'm going to do architecture, but I'm going to do it outside. And I quickly realized that that something didn't sit well with me about these sort of what I would now call unproductive landscapes, these these highly designed spaces that didn't do much um, from a plant standpoint. So luckily I was at Penn State, which is a great ag school. So I started taking um, taking more classes in ag. I, I ended up majoring in geography just because I didn't want to major in sort of corporate agriculture or whatever you want to call that. But luckily I was able to take a lot of classes there and get inspired. And so that's kind of the beginning. And, and yeah, so I guess then the other part of it is since we since I wasn't from a farm, I didn't have any experience, you know, I, I didn't know where to go to get started. So I started doing a work share on a farm called Tate Farm um, in State College, which is just where, where Penn State's located. And that was really cool. You know, I was doing fall and winter stuff, and that may 
because that's when the academic year is, and that may sort of explain my my liking for for fall and winter growing. But uh, basically, did did sort of the uh, work share there, then did an internship up here in Petoskey, Michigan, and really enjoyed it. My wife and I were dead set on moving to Montana. And we were sure that's where our future was. <laughs> and as is so often the case, that's, that's what you think is not what happened. So long story short, we ended up in Petoskey because I couldn't find on any internship website an internship in Montana. So I took the latitude of Bozeman, which is where we wanted to live. I was a geography major, right? So I took the latitude of Bozeman and I applied to internships literally from North Dakota to Maine and landed on a farm in Petoskey. And we had never been to Michigan before. My wife and I, we were not married at the time. I was a junior in college, but we'd never been to Petoskey before. And um, we were smitten. You know, people here say smitten with the mitten. But um, (laughs) (laughs) truthfully, we were smitten. Michigan's not a place I'd ever spent much time thinking about, though we did travel a lot. So I suffer from grass is greener syndrome. And my my then girlfriend, now wife, knew that. And so when we were dated, we dated long distance for five and a half years from the time we met until we moved to Petoskey when I graduated college. So we traveled to 42 states in that, you know, five-year courtship with one another. And that way we knew, you know, over time we were going to get involved in a land-based business. And so there was going to be a bit of an anchor, you know, a bit of a tether. And that's something that I'm a, I'm a true millennial. That's something that scared. It still scares me. What the heck am I saying? It still scares me. So, <laughs> so that was something we wanted to think about. And, um, yeah, never thought about Michigan in of those 42 states, you know, Michigan wasn't one of them. And so we truly, truly fell in love. And so Northern Michigan's a unique spot. We're in Petoskey, Michigan, which is a resort sort of, a, uh, really truly founded as a resort community for the big industrial cities of Chicago and cities in Ohio and Detroit uh, for people to summer to kind of like a door County, Wisconsin or up North Minnesota or Cape Cod, kind of like one of those far Harbor, Maine. Yeah, Yeah. exactly. Exactly. So um, that's kind of the nature of the town. It's also the nature of the economy. It's highly seasonal. It's highly driven by people from downstate or out of state coming in and injecting a bunch of cash into the economy. You know, we have lots of lakes and fresh water. We're, we're, you know, a couple miles from Lake Michigan on the farm here. Yeah. So Potassi is a resort town. And so that's an interesting dynamic in that we have a year round population of this, of, you know, the city or town of Potassi of around 6,000 people. Um, but in the summer that balloons, I mean, maybe 50,000 people get through here, you know, on a weekly basis. And so it's a really big second home area. Uh, But generally, generally speaking, um, a lot of older folks, retired folks, snowbird types, people that used to work for GM or, you know, the big three. So it's, it's an interesting clientele. It's something that we spent a lot of time sort of thinking about and working with, but the, the bottom line is it's an absolutely beautiful spot to be. And if, like us, you're fortunate enough to be able to make your home and your and your livelihood here, it's it's a great spot, you know, 12 months out of the year. So the farm itself is 75 acres. We bought it through a mortgage with our respective parents. So our parents helped us finance the purchase. It's a 
not a, it was um we like to joke it's actually our highest interest rate you know with our parents <laughs> <laughs> so um i guess that's more of a sign of how favorable financing is for beginning farmers than it is a knock against their parents but um you know it's it's a true it's a true mortgage so we bought 75 acres for a little over $200,000 uh with nothing on the farm so it was straight pasture that was something we wanted because we wanted to certify certify organic from day one. And so we were looking for land that was not being cultivated. Um, luckily, there's a lot of fallow land up here. And so we were able to certify from day one, and there was nobody up here who was certified in our immediate you know, vicinity. And so we thought that was something important to do, something we believed in. So, yeah, just a bit is 75 acres, and I like to joke that that's 70 too many. Um, we were wide-eyed and bushy-tailed and thought we were going to have this 25-acre vegetable farm, when in reality, we cultivate just under an acre and a half um, in total, and that's, um, that's plenty. So that's the operation. We have a quarter acre under cover. That's between two hoop houses that are both 30 by 144, and then a greenhouse plus greenhouse add-on. It's a 30 by 72, and then we've got a little one attached to that that's like a 16 by 30. Um, and that's our deep winter greenhouse, that little one. That's the structures. We we live in a pole barn house, so we didn't have money for a, a pole barn and a house or, or a house and a, and a shed or whatever. So we built a pole barn house, which, as it turns out, totally meets code, and I highly recommend. <laughs> so, so tell me, what's a, what's a pole barn house? So a pole barn house literally looks like a pole barn from the outside, but there's an interior wall that, from a code standpoint, is a firewall. And so we live on one third of the pole barn. And then the other two thirds is our wash pack and our walk-in cooler and, you know, produce washing and everything like that. So on the, on, it's a 40 by 60 structure. And so 20 by 40, one third is our house and it has a downstairs and an upstairs loft. So it ends up being 1600 square feet of living space. Um, and then the vegetable side of things or the, the farm side of things is 40 by 40. And so that's also 1,600 square feet. And it was simply the most cost-effective building. we could. I mean, the shell of it, you know, plus the, the concrete and everything. I mean, I think we built the entire shell and got it almost sort of finished out more or less for right around 75 grand all in. So it was a really, really cost-effective structure. You know, of course, we had to put in a well and septic and all these other things. So um, there was a lot going on. It was really intimidating. I'm, I'm open to admit that, you know, I'm calling contractors and, and, you know, just turned 23. So it was definitely, um, a real learning process. And in the interim, my wife and I, who were engaged at the time, were living in a splendid 27 foot trailer that people usually camp in for a weekend. Um, right. <laughs> but we lived in that for seven months, <laughs> including before and after our wedding. Yeah, Brian, you know, that's, you know, if you, if you did it with kids, I'd be impressed. But, you know, that's, I think this is pretty par for the startup organic farmer. Yeah, that's fair. That's fair. That's a, that's, that's a good point. So anyways, that, that was kind of the origin. So we live in this pole barn house, which, you know, we're really into sort of lean principles and that kind of thing. And we can talk more about that later. But as it turned out, we were initially concerned that keeping home and work so close was going to be hazardous for either our, our relationship or just our sanity. We just, we did have concerns 
about the proximity and, and, and you literally step through a threshold and you're at work, you know, is that, is that a pro or a con? Um, I don't think we gave ourselves enough credit as it's turned out. It's been, it's been an unbelievable pro and we've done a great job of drawing the line of when the day ends. And, um, there's just so many efficiencies that are realized by stepping through the door, you know, whether it's computer work or printers or internet and just, all kinds of things that that just you know it's just really nice to have everything all in one spot so not to mention that you can store a heck of a lot of beer in the walk-in cooler and then it's not too far away you're not kidding every time my dad comes here he's like all right i'm putting the beer in the walk-in <laughs> so yeah it's a great it's a great spot and we got married and the pole barn was a shell and we had all you know a dozen of our friends sleeping in hammocks, you know, in the pole barn as we did all the insulation together. So it's been fun to really build it from the ground up. Uh, it's certainly been costly, but one of the, one of the advantages is we had no, you know, it's a disadvantage and advantage that we had no existing on-farm infrastructure. I mean, zero. And so the advantage is we can build it all how we want from the start. The disadvantage is we have to build it all. So it costs time, you know, costs time and money, and and it takes time. So that's been where we've at, and that's one of those reasons that I think I think we sort of are really our our own worst critics is we're everything on the farm is our doing, and so we're we're constantly analyzing what could be better. You know, not, we have we have this expression, you know, nothing is sacred, so anything could be changed at at any time, and and that's something that we really try to live by. I want to circle back to how you actually finance that startup. But, sure. but before before we do that, can you just give us a, a 30,000 foot overview of how you're selling your products and, and what products you guys are marketing? Yeah, absolutely. So 2014 was our first year. I'll just do the dollars first because that's something people key in on a lot. So 2014 was our first season. We were both working full time off the farm and we did 26 grand. 2015 was last year. That was our second season. I quit my job in March to get going on the farm. We did 120 grand. And then uh, 2016 is this year. Um, I'm still full-time on the farm. My wife is now, instead of part-time teaching, she's a full-time professor at our local community college. So I get her for four months uh, in the summer. And we're on pace to do right between 180 and 200 grand this year. We have not really a lot of off-farm off labor. It's really my wife and I. It's me year-round. It's her for four months. And then we have a guy, a friend of ours, really, who comes on Mondays and a friend of a friend who comes on Thursdays. And that's it. So uh, that's the labor force. We produce everything on an acre and a half. We sell mostly greens of all size, shapes and sizes. So we do microgreens, baby greens, you know, regular sort of salad greens and leafy greens, large greens. That's definitely the bread and butter. We then do a lot of herbs. We do potted herbs, cut herbs in bulk, cut herbs in bunches, and cut herbs in clamshells, you know, little half ounce clamshells at the grocery store. Um, and we do a couple tunnel crops. So we do one tunnel of tomatoes. It's about 800 plants. We do one tunnel of tomatoes. And then we really enjoy garlic. So we have about 10,000 garlic bulbs, which is, you know, quarter acre or so. So we do the garlic. Um, 
And other than that, not too much. You know, we flesh it out with a few things. We do some sunflowers. And then the other part of our operation that's not field-based that I'd be remiss to not mention is uh, we produce honey. So that's actually sort of what started the farm was a friend of mine, Greta, uh, you know, shot me a text message when we were at Penn State and said, hey, there's a class called Beekeeping 101. Do you want to take it? And I said, sure, I don't know anything about bees, but that sounds awesome. And I took it and I fell in love, man. So I did that fall of senior year. By spring of senior year, I had three hives in my backyard in college. Uh, May of senior year, day after graduation, I'm driving those things up here to Michigan in the backseat of my car uh, to never repeat that experience. Um, But yeah, so (laughs) we have right now, we have around 30 to 40 hives. And the bees have been an interesting part of our farm because they, from a business standpoint, I really like the prospect of having a shelf-stable product that was not like a jam or a jelly, something you had to do additional work for, a shelf-stable product that we could sell year-round. That was really appealing, um, and it didn't lose its value, right? So it never goes bad, so it holds value, and that was really important to me. Um, but then there's there's this other sort of... Um, you know, deeper element of you, you're more in touch and it sounds sort of cheesy, but you're more in touch with, um, the big picture parts of the season and the landscape and, you know, what flowers are, you know, uh, blooming and things like that. So, uh, but as the farm has matured over the last couple of years for the sake of sort of maximizing our assets, my wife, Anne has really taken over almost all of the beekeeping operation from a day-to-day standpoint. So, I haven't personally inspected a hive um, since probably beginning of May. And this is the first year where that's the case. And that, I can tell you, has been a real, real advantage. We, When we were first starting, everything was, you know, I thought everything was so great to do together. And as the operation has matured, we've really started doing a bit more dividing and conquering. So... She's really in charge of the bees during the season, and she's in charge of day-to-day greenhouse watering and things like that. And then I'm I'm big picture, you know, selling everything, marketing it, emails, field production, hoop houses, and I harvest everything. So I, I am the harvester. And so that's kind of been our breakdown labor-wise. And, and that I can, I can tell you from a personal and a business standpoint, that's really improved our operation. We're both happier. We're kind of not in each other's hair. I mean, we, we like each other a lot, but we're not constantly sort of critiquing each other or what have you. Um, and the farm is benefiting because I can be doing something on, in the fields while she's doing the bees and everything gets done. So that's the products, honey, greens, herbs. We do transplants in the spring. And actually, that's a huge part of what we do is transplants in the spring. And then marketing-wise, we've taken an interesting approach, I think, for a farm our size, which is pretty small. We don't have a huge population. So we sell 50% of our product, almost to the percentage point, wholesale. And we sell 50% of it direct. And we sell it direct at two farmer's markets, a market on Friday and a market on Saturday. And then we sell wholesale primarily to grocery stores. So we sell it to our local grocery co-op, which has two locations and a local independently owned sort of supermarket. And then we do a handful of restaurants, but I'm not, I'm not crazy about restaurants. I find chefs to be somewhat fickle. And, um, my background is, you know, I worked at a grocery co-op when we got started. And so I sort of speak retail and retail speaks to me. And that's, that's a huge portion of what we do. 
Let's talk about getting started and how you went about that. You you mentioned that you worked at a local foods co-op as you were getting the farm started. You also did some financing for the farm. You mentioned that you you guys took out a mortgage essentially from your parents, but then you immediately put in this this huge chunk of infrastructure. How did you guys make that work? Yeah, so we did a series of different programs. So uh, different loan programs and grant programs. I am a you know self-described conference junkie. I knew I didn't have decades of family farming knowledge to draw upon. So I went to a lot of conferences when I was in college, once I knew we were going to start a farm and while I was working at the co-op. And so um, actually that's where I first met you is your fearless farm finances track at Practical Farmers of Iowa in 2013. Um, <laughs> looking back, that was a transformational experience because Paul and Sandy Arnold were also speaking at that conference. And I can tell you they were in the room and you were doing that class. And it was lunch with Paul when I sort of thought to myself, this doesn't need to be a hobby. This can be a business because my wife and I have been planning on a five-year plan. We were going to get the farm going over the next five years. And in five years, if everything was going okay, you know, and it looked all right, then we, one of us or both of us were going to start to farm full time. And when I talked to Paul at lunch at that conference, the more I was talking with him, the more I thought, I'm, I'm not giving ourselves enough credit. We need to get after this now. And so within almost 13 months of that conversation, I quit my job and we were, and I was farming full time and, and haven't looked back. So that was a really critical thing. But so the conferences really informed me of what, what I thought we wanted to do. So to get money, um, the biggest chunk was the FSA beginning farmers microloan. We did that program for the max amount, 35000 and then the next year, they upped the max amount, and we have a good relationship with our loan officer there, and he said, you can actually reapply for the difference. So it was 35000 We paid off 5000 seven-year note. We'd paid off five, so we were at 30. So we reapplied you know, within a year for the remaining 20 to get another 20 grand. So that was 50 grand to start with. Um, from FSA. And that went towards our tractor and our greenhouse and some bee supplies. And we knew, we've always said from the beginning, we knew we were going to have a core. We were never going to have a CSA. We had no desire to do that. We did not want to be a jack of all trades and master of none. So um, we knew garlic, greens, and honey is what we always used to say, garlic, greens, and honey. So if it didn't have to do with garlic, greens, and honey, then it didn't get a loan. <laughs> so um, we've, it's evolved a little bit, but still you can see tractor, greenhouse, honeybees, that's what that money went to. Um, and then 2014, as we were starting to capitalize everything, we took advantage of a couple different programs. We did the equip program for a hoop house and we were certified organic. So we were able to get, you know, they had just upped the amount that year. So I think we got 9,500. Um, towards the hoop house. We did a Kiva Zip micro loan program, which I highly recommend. It's like Kickstarter, but it's a loan. So it's not a donation. It's a loan and it's 0% interest up to $10,000 for farmers in the United States. Kiva started as a way to funnel money to developing countries and businesses getting started there. Um, but due to a lot of great efforts and, you know, advocacy work here, some people said, well, hey, we've got disadvantaged producers in the States. So we did a Kiva Zip microloan program. 
um, sort of at the recommendation of our hoop house builder in Michigan, we're really blessed to have a company called Nifty Hoops. I don't know if you've ever heard of them, but um, they they started building hoop houses just sort of by accident, but it's spearheaded um, by Jeff McCabe, who was a builder. And so he started building these kits and thought, there's a there's a better way to build these hoop houses. And, and thus, Nifty Hoops was born. So they actually... Um, have all of their hoop houses built, you know, to their standards, but then they come with a crew to build it. So you get the hoop house and its construction within 24 hours. So from the time they show up, you could be planting in it 24 hours later. I, I just think it's a great, great model that could be replicated, you know, across the country. But that notwithstanding, he saw the need for farmer financing and got involved with Kiva Zip and, and suggested that, that to us. So we're eternally grateful for that. So that was $10,000. And that was funded, you know, by friends and family, uh, you know, $10, $30 at a time. And we got that money from, I think, 30 different countries. I mean, it's very cool how the Internet has sort of leveled that playing field. And then um, Michigan has a program called Hoop Houses for Health that's sponsored by the Michigan Farmers Market Association. And so in that program, they'll give you 75% up to fifty up to $15,000. So you could build a $20,000 structure. Um, and it is repaid over five years, again, 0% interest, by selling produce to low-income families and schools with low and reduced lunch rates um, over the next five years. So we get the money up front, we build the hoop house with it. And then for five years, those families or those schools can buy produce from us at zero cost to them. But each time they buy something that goes towards paying off that debt. It's very truly cool. a brilliant program. I like that. That's what a, what a great way to structure it. And, and I especially like the fact they're not trying to call it resource conservation like they do in the EQIP program. Because personally, uh -huh. I think that's, I mean, I know the EQIP program has been a huge help for a lot of people, but it drives me nuts that they've kind of housed this, this high tunnel grants program under this soil conservation. Because it just doesn't, it doesn't make sense in terms of the, the money spent for the impact that you receive. But I like this idea because it's really going after, you know, solid returnable results to the community in exchange for a substantial benefit to the farmer. You're absolutely correct. And the other part that's so brilliant about it, you know, other states should take note, is it's taking one grant dollar and it's doing two fundamental things with it. It's spending it twice. That grant dollar goes to me, the farmer. I build capital that immediately enhances my farm's, you know, viability and my ability to produce. But better yet, it then takes that dollar and cycles it a second time by giving it to a food director or a family who can then spend that money at no cost to them for tangible food to buy from me. So I got a tangible structure and they got tangible food and that dollar was spent twice immediately. And I think that is, I mean, that's, that's super savvy. Brilliant. It's just brilliant. So, so now, um, so, okay. So that, I guess that, that was, that was funding. So about how much funding did you guys get all together for the farm beyond the, beyond the loan that you got from your parents? Yeah, that's a good question. Probably it's, I've, I've done the math before. It's right around a hundred grand because it's 50, 50 FSA, 
10 Kiva, that's 60. 15 Hoop House for Health, that's 75. 10 Equip, that's 85. And then we did a Honeybee Hotel uh, sort of partial grant, partial friends and family. Yeah, right around 100 grand. And what's your timeline for getting that paid back? Actually, quicker than one might expect. You know, I don't think debt is a dirty four-letter word. I think debt used wisely can be a great asset. And I tend, and this drives my wife nuts, but I tend to like think and dream like a hundred miles a minute. You know, I'm already thinking about the, you know, what we're doing in 10 years. And so basically as quick as I could get money, I had great, great ways to spend it. <laughs> so um, I think, uh, but I say that um, sort of half kiddingly, I also know that I have the diligence to be able to, you know, pay that back and to know that we owe that. So the longest note is the FSA microloan for seven years, and that's at 2% interest. And then Kiva Zip is three years. So we're almost done with year two of that. Hoop House for Health is five years and equipped as a grant. Um, and then our mortgage for the house and property through our family is a standard 30-year home property mortgage. So that's 30 years. But yes, yeah, so the seven years is the longest and to be frank, the only reason we're not paying them off faster is the highest interest rate is 2% with FSA. So why would we do that? I actually remember having somebody tell me, as you know, when I was describing my plans to pay off our very low interest mortgage on the farm rapidly, they said, uh-uh. You don't want to do that. It was another another farmer. He said, you want to spend that, you know, take the money that you would have put into that and spend it on capitalizing your farm operation because you're going to get far more bang for your buck out of that. You're, you're absolutely correct. And this is one of those reasons I went to a lot of conferences and why I did the Fearless Farm Finances track with, you know, with you guys and why I read that book. And Richard Wiswall's book was really, really transformational for me um, in terms of just helping me visualize it and and putting it in perspective that, you know, you're not just building a farm, you're building a life, you're building a career. So my wife and I did all those exercises on, you know, what do you want to get out of this? At the end of the day, what matters the most? And so we've always said that if the farm starts to make us unhappy, like the farm works for us, we don't work for the farm. The farm is not, we created this beast, but you know, this isn't a Frankenstein that we're going to lose control over. The farm works for us. So if something about the farm is not working for us, then we have the power and authority to change that. And I think that's something that, that we can sometimes lose sight of when you're looking down a row of, you know, impossibly weedy greens or something, you can lose sight of it. But sometimes the best decision when you look at that row is to plow it in because your sanity matters. I firmly believe your sanity matters more than whatever potential future value is attached to that row. And if that process is going to make you lament that crop or resent this life choice, then that's a dark path that I don't want to walk. So, you know, call it what you like. Maybe I'm running away from, from my problems, but I, I don't think so. I think that really helps us. You know, we're pretty upbeat people. We're, we, we maintain a really positive outlook on life. I think we're both, you know, eternally optimistic. And I think one of the reasons, one of the ways we've been able to do that in what can be such a challenging career choice is if something's not working or something's too difficult, we shed it. I mean, we, we drop those things like bad habits because you have to, there's, you, you could, you could, you could get swallowed alive, you know, if you let that stuff uh, overwhelm you. So that's been although, a really critical Brian, part. 
I, I, Brian, I think one of the challenges, though, with with taking on the debt is that it does kind of lock you in in some ways. I mean, it does put a mandate for production because you have to make enough money to service that debt every year. You're absolutely correct. And I think that's one of my favorite things that we've done is that all those things I just said, that's kind of the like our relationship with the farm, with the business. Right. That's what keeps, you know, us sane with our relationship with the business. But the debt has done a great job of making the business have to answer to a third party that's not just us. You know, we can't say, Oh, is it down here? But that's fine, you know, we don't need to whatever, buy a new, you know, buy new clothes this year. That's just what we chose. We need to pay those debts. And I think that has forced us to, you know, I think that's kind of the kick in the butt is whenever we're looking at Big picture, you know, big picture things we're thinking, okay, we need to generate X amount of gross dollars to satisfy this debt. And as we grow and as we mature, we're going to try and really grow that net. But right now we do need, you're right, you're absolutely right. We need a certain amount of gross dollars to satisfy that debt. And I think um, I wouldn't be surprised if when we do pay those debts off, that we scale back what our gross number is. Um, because if the net's comfortable, you know, we don't, maybe, maybe we could drop some of those things, but I think answering to that debt has kept us honest. We've met some other growers that started with sort of a pile of cash, maybe later in life, they had a, you know, 401k they cashed in or something like that. And I, I can't speak to anybody else's personal situation, but I think the fact that we've borrowed other money and I mean, money from, you know, farm supporters through Kiva, like we have sort of in some ways peer pressure debt. And that's really, we have every desire to pay that back promptly, in full, every time, always. And the business needs to do it. So, yeah, you're right. It's it's a burden, but it's a burden that we've embraced. And like this year, right? This year, our debt obligation was like 46 grand. I mean, that's, that's a yeah. chunk of change to be paying back. So I don't want to make light of it. Uh, because we're, I'm really good at credit cards too. <laughs> so, so I mean, we have a chunk, but that that was 46 grand, and um, my approach it may not be the best accounting approach, but my approach is to sort of really try to satisfy that on time, and then I get, you know, I have a target for what I'm going to make, but in terms of the timeline of when we pay those things, I try to pay those first because that feels like a real weight off of my shoulders and then start paying ourselves, you know, big dividends in September, October, November, you know, just sort of the gravy. It's the budget wise, it's exactly what we shot for. But I think mentally from a timeline, nothing feels better than satisfying those December debt payments when you're selling tomatoes in August, you know, that feels awesome. And then you can just in the fall, sort of be paying yourself. And I think that's obviously something that works for you guys because I don't think there's any kids in the picture with you and Ann, are there? That's correct. There are no kids in the picture with us. It's a desire of ours. We knew it would have to wait until the farm was established. You know, I'm 26 right now, so I'm not really in a super rush, but I think I think we can feel ourselves, you know, we used to not know in what time we would spend with a kid, right? If we weren't in the field or if we weren't doing something, then it was like, what, you know, it wouldn't be fair to that future child. But um, I think we can feel ourselves hitting what we sort of call cruising altitude this year where we're, you know, starting at eight o'clock, ending at 530 pretty regularly, you know, not really working on Sundays, 
and we dropped the market on Wednesdays because we just thought, you know, let's just spend more time on the farm. So we're trying to make some of these quality of life decisions that, um, to your point, I think are going to afford us that, that hopefully that possibility within the next couple of years. Again, kind of wanting, wanting to round out this financial picture a little bit because, you know, I'll, I'll admit one of the things when I have somebody on the farm, whether it's Connor Crickmore or JM Fortier or, or uh, you know, any of the Curtis Stone, anybody that's come on and said, you know, I'm making some relatively insane amount of dollars on some <laughs> relatively tiny plot of land. If we take that $180,000 that you're on track to to make this year for, for gross income, for your yep. overall sales, how does that break out? in your different enterprises. Yeah. So I, I think, I mean, it's so great to ask. I'll, I'll break down the 180 because it shifted a little bit from last year, but a quick, you know, you want to talk about the numbers not lying. Last year we did 120 grand, right? Right. Less than 15% of that money came from our field production. Really? Really. So there's two parts to that story. Maybe I'm a field operator <laughs> for one, but I believe in, from a business enterprise standpoint, you know, the rich get richer or feed the beast or fuel the fire, whatever you want to call it. I'm a firm believer in that. So when I see something that's working, I just want to keep giving that the resources it needs to perform, you know, like a top race car. So when, when we saw how well the greenhouse was performing with plant sale and potted herbs and microgreens, we just, you know, instead of saying, okay, well, the field's dragging behind, we should improve the field. It's like, no, no, no. The field's got enough. We're going, we're going harder in the greenhouse. We're doing more in the greenhouse. And the same has been true for the bees. You know, the first year we had 10 hives and we thought, okay, we're selling out a honey in a couple months and we're getting a great price. We sell the honey for a dollar an ounce. We're getting a great price on this honey. If we can get it up to 2000 pounds, you know, we're talking real money. And so, so we jumped up to 40 hives the next year. And so that's definitely been a place where I really believe in just like, let's get these things crushing. And, and to your point, this goes back to the debt part of the equation. I'm not here to build a model farm and have perfectly manicured fields. That is a goal of mine, but we owe money to a lot of people. And so when something is working, I need to fuel that fire and get it bigger and bigger so that we can help satisfy these debts. And so that's, so that's one of the reasons. So of that 15%, yeah, that was in the field. But I, uh, I think the field's an expensive place to operate. You know, I think, uh, you know, I talk to my dad a lot about sort of business advice. He doesn't know much about farming, but he knows a bit about business. And, and he's like, Brian, if you, if you write a book, it should be called The Farm is Not in the Field. <laughs> and I said, well, that may be true for me, but I know a lot of people that are doing really well in the field. But the greenhouse is our cash cow. So percentage-wise breakdown, um, honey this year will be about 10% of sales, maybe 10 to 15. Greenhouse is at least 50%. That is the cash cow. Hoop houses are probably around, well, what's left? That's 60. So hoop houses are probably 20% and fields maybe 20%. This year, we're okay. doing a lot better in the hoop houses. I knew I had room for improvement after last year. So um, that's one where I expect those numbers to shift a little bit. But um, 
this is the year I can be perfectly frank with you. This is the year where we're saying the theme of this year is we're giving the field a fair shake. So if it's 15% again this year with us, we're dumping resources into it. We're getting plenty of fertility. We're keeping it weeded, plenty of irrigation, receding consistently. Even if we're not positive where it's going to be sold, we want to make sure we have it available. Like we want to, provided the resources to, you know, pay for itself if, if it can. And if it's, you know, if it's below 15% again this year, I bet we'll probably drop to a half acre because I believe that much more in our protected culture growing. And the, you know, the beekeeping is not a huge percentage because we're not planning to scale that up. And as the veggies have grown, it's become a smaller percentage of total sales, but it's steady. It doesn't expire. We have it on the on the market booth, you know, 52 weeks a year, and it's a core part of our farm. So I don't see that going anywhere. So um, we're planning to expand the greenhouse and to focus on keep maximizing the hoop houses. We hear a lot of times about X number of dollars on Y number of acres. And, and what you're really saying here is it's not a matter of, of X dollars on Y acres. It's, it's B dollars coming out of why square feet in the greenhouse? You know, it's really breaking that down. I think it's important to understand where all of those sources of income are, because otherwise I think you end up, you know, you're out in the field and you're looking at your crop of carrots and going, this crop of carrots is not making me $150,000 an acre. So I think that I really appreciate your willingness to go into that realistic approach. And, on that. and I think it's so critical. You know, we we have what we call sort of a full transparency farming philosophy. I am only the grower I am in three seasons because so many other growers have shared so much with me, either directly or at a conference or on YouTube or in a book or on Facebook. I mean, I am the product of the knowledge sharing generation. So I, I can hardly take credit for so many of the things we've done. I've certainly pieced them together in our unique little way, but I, it's a lot of borrowed ideas tweaked for our specific circumstances. And, and, and I have no shame in that. I think that's one of the best things you can do. But we feel so strongly about sharing everything we do because who am I to shut the door behind me after I get in? I don't know where the next great farmers are. I don't know who's listening to this podcast. And every little nugget that's out there can be a game changer. And I think that's so critical that, that we share everything. You know, these people that hold their books close to their chest, I get it. I mean, I completely get it. But um, but like, how are we supposed to encourage people to get started growing and not tell them where we make money? Right. I mean, how can we truthfully foster, you know, we, you know, I'm 26, so I get a lot of beginning farmer sort of newsletters and conversations and things like that, you know, to foster more growers, we need to show them where the money is. We need to excite them about how much money is there and that what matters so much more than a perfect field of carrots is probably what your spreadsheets look like and what your margin is. Because if you're not watching your margin, you could be grossing $2 million and still be broke. And I think that that, that would be a tragedy. And I don't want to be a part of any culture that encourages somebody to get started without understanding what they're getting into. So yeah, my debt this year was $46,000 to pay back in one, that's just this year, right? That's a lot of money. But 
I also know that our greenhouse, which is not going to have some of the trials and tribulations that you're going to have in the field, I know that that greenhouse is going to produce maybe double that. I don't know, but certainly at least that. So there's some security in having those structures. And I think that that's what, that's what we're looking at from a business standpoint is we want to share as much as we can so people can then sort of plug it in. And so one of the things that you asked me was what's the breakdown of where things came from? The question that I like to follow that up with is how do you know? Right? How, how, how do you know that I'm not just full of crap? <laughs> and this is something that we did from day one. This actually may be, it's not an original idea, but this is not a borrowed idea that I learned at a conference. But um, we had this vision of selling honey across the country. It, it seems laughable now because we sell out in our local markets, but we, we were dreaming big. And so we invested in an e-commerce website by Shopify. And we did this because we thought we were doing the best investment for honey. We were going to have good shipping rates, take all the credit cards, you know, and have a nice ready to go website to ship. Okay. Well, one of the things, this was before we even had product to sell. I should mention that. One of the things that Shopify offered was an iPad point of sale app right after we had signed on to be a, to, a, with a website with them. Okay. They're a platform for those that aren't aware. Shopify is like a, a web platform like Squarespace or Weebly, but it's, it's got much more horsepower behind it than those types of free templates. So it's a it's platform. Designed, it's, it's really designed for e-commerce. Absolutely. Yeah. There's plenty of big name companies that use Shopify as their main way of selling things. So, and they do a lot with like fashion and other sort of startups. But anyways, they offered this point of sale app. And I thought, well, that might be overkill for my farm, which has not yet ever gone to a farmer's market. But boy, wouldn't it be great to get sales reports after each market in spreadsheet form without having to sort of write things down? Because I knew I, was, I knew I wasn't going to do that. I know you can do it. I know Paul and Sandy are really good at it. I knew I wasn't going to do it. And so know thyself you know, sort of came into play here. And so my wife and I got that. And I'm proud to say that from the first time we ever went to a farmer's market until, you know, today I was at market, we have entered every single transaction we have ever conducted through that app. And I have the records, the pricing, sales by date, by hour, by crop, by category. And the beautiful thing is all of that's on the back end. When I'm at market, I just tap in quart of tomatoes, bunch of radishes, bag of microgreens, and it's really smooth at the farmer's market. But then on the back end, when it's winter time, I can break this down and I'll record in my notes on October 25th, all kale sold going forward is coming from the hoop house. So then I can break down that a kale bunch is not just a kale bunch, a kale bunch, to your point, you know, the B dollars coming from the hoop house into Y income, that was hoop house dollars. So I make sure that they get their appropriate credit for where the money came from. And so, you know, following that money, which I'm a big believer in following the money, following that money is the only reason that I know the greenhouse is as important to our farm as it is. Because frankly, potted herbs, which is a real staple of our market booth and our business, I don't think my wife or I would have given it the credit it deserves, but we started noticing, you know, shoot, man, 
10, 20, 30, 40 pots of herbs times every market across the entire year. People are buying potted basil as late as we can have it. This shouldn't have been groundbreaking because it's at the grocery store 52 weeks a year. But if we could have it, then we could sell it. And so we started to notice that tomatoes are sexy because they're big spikes in revenue for the weeks that you have tomatoes. A lot of the crops that we do really well with are decidedly unsexy from a spike in revenue standpoint. But when you generate a year-to-date sales report or a full-year sales report you know, on the back end, you see just what heavyweight those crops can be. I think this is why the data is so important. We discovered this, you know, my farm was really known for its carrots. And to the point where our 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 refrigerated truck had carrots painted on the side of it and still <laughs> driving still driving around up there in Minneapolis with my carrots on it. Right. And you know, we sat down and crunched the numbers at one point. We found out the money wasn't in carrots, the money was in beets. Oh. Because carrots were so expensive to produce. The weed control was hard. The cleaning was hard. We, we constantly had people bugging us to put them in bags. Where beets, beets were easy, you know? The, yep. They germinate two days before the carrots do. You put them through the barrel washer, they're done. You don't have to polish them. Nobody wants you to bag them. And we were getting close to the same price for bulk beets that we were getting for bulk carrots. But it was one of those things you never would have known. And who really wants to be famous for growing beets? Right. I mean, sure. You know, all that's going to get you. All that's going to get you is your teenage daughter is going to tease you about being Dwight Schrute, and that's it. <laughs> yeah. No. You're. I mean, you're absolutely right. Right. I mean, these are the kind of decisions that let me sleep at night comfortably. Is that we're not going blind into this. I'm not getting excited about tomatoes and thinking I should build five more hoop houses for tomatoes because if 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 I can bump revenue five grand a week when tomatoes are on. Then with five more hoop houses, I should be at 30 grand a week. But, you know, the cost to produce tomatoes is a lot. And I like tomatoes because they're easy to sell. You know, they sell themselves. And so I know on our farm that growing tomatoes gives us a crop that we don't need to educate people on, that sells itself. We don't spend a lot of time marketing it, which is kind of the opposite of microgreens, which is probably our our big heavyweight from a cash flow standpoint is microgreens. That's a crop that we started out sort of really baby steps, like who's going to buy these? How are they going to want them? What if they don't like them? We asked all these questions. It it came under such scrutiny that a crop like tomatoes, it's like, grow as many as you can. You know, people are going to go crazy for them. So, but, you know, understanding that the profit margin is so much better on microgreens than tomatoes, we didn't stop growing tomatoes. But we just acknowledge that its role in our operation is not to be an incredible margin maker, but to really grow those that gross dollars and really draw people into the booth and really sell themselves. The record keeping you're talking about here financially is really on the micro level transactions. How much how many dollars do we make on tomatoes at the second farmer's market in August in 2016? Are you putting all your financial information then going into QuickBooks or are you maintaining that on on spreadsheets? What's the next step? Yeah, so the next step I believe is you need to you need to keep records that work for how you think and how you make decisions. So my accountant I we have a great relationship with my accountant. Hey Olivia, if you're listening. But we have a good relationship, but she doesn't like a lot of the records I keep because she can't do anything with them. And I'm like, Yeah, you don't understand. 
you know, these numbers would be a lot smaller that you're looking at if I weren't keeping records like this. So I'm going to keep keeping records like this and, and I'm paying you, you know, to figure it out. Right. Because I, I'm running a business that needs to be the records. So to answer your question, no, we don't use QuickBooks. I have a cloud-based accounting program called Wave Accounting. I think they're based in Canada. I read a couple of reviews online. It seemed like a good one. It was free, but, um, you know, we take credit cards since day one in every element of our business. So whether or not the customer buying a $3 basket of tomatoes wants to use a credit card or the grocery co-op buying $3,000 of vegetables wants to pay with credit card, we don't discriminate. I believe you want to make it as easy for somebody to pay you in a timely manner and in full as possible. And anything that I'm not doing as a business owner is just hampering a potential sale. So one of the reasons that I really liked, and I know QuickBooks takes credit card too, but one of the reasons that we went with Wave was great credit card integration, ability to customize the invoices. And I just, I don't know, it was free and we use all Macs and I had heard people kind of QuickBooks on Mac for cloud isn't quite the same. And yeah, I mean, call it what it is, but our books are done in QuickBooks because that's what our accountant uses. But my day-to-day invoicing is in Wave. And then I actually use Google Drive for most of what we do. So, um, so yes, there's two ways that money comes in, right? Wholesale and direct. All of the direct sales are put through the iPad or through our website. And those all dump into the sales reports and spreadsheets that Shopify generates. Okay. And then all of our wholesale business comes through wave. And so that's how I can, you know, keep live tracking of what percentage is wholesale, what percentage is direct is it's as simple as like, I literally log into each one. I look at the year to date and I can tell you exactly where we're at, right? For the year on each one and watch that vary. So then on the back end, I have, it's really clunky because I did it, you know, May 30th of 2014 because I knew I needed to keep records. But I just have a spreadsheet in Google Drive that is like the mother spreadsheet, you know, like it's, it's the master sheet. And it basically has columns for the two farmers markets the total farmer's market sales, you know, each week. And then each wholesale sale has a column. And then, you know, as you work your way across to the right, then it's just the total sales for that week. And then I can just do, you know, months and and years and things like that. And then what I do, because I'm very goal driven, I take, and this is something I learned working at a grocery co-op that what matters a lot about your sales isn't just, did you hit 10 grand today? It's, Sure, great. You hit 10 grand today, but what was this day last year? And so I that's become a really powerful way of informing things. So we then I then will fill just to the right of our total line, I'll fill those exact totals from the weeks of last year. So like this year I knew my goal was to hit $5100. This this week last year we did $5100. So each time I'm getting a wholesale order, I'm plugging it in. You know, I'm plugging it in. It's tallying up by Wednesday. It's at like 2,500, you know, okay, this is good. And so then we have all of our wholesale orders done by Thursday. And so our markets are Friday, Saturday. So usually what happens is if we haven't already beaten last week's total going into market, I'll tell my wife, okay, across the next two days, we need to do, let's say $1,800 to tie last year. And if we do, you know, let's say $2,500, then it'll be our best week ever. And so we'll know that going into market. And 
it doesn't influence a lot about how we sell, but the app tracks our sales in real time. So I check my phone maybe a dozen <laughs> times over the course of market to see where we're at for the day. And we don't do a lot of dumping of produce. I don't fundamentally believe in that, but I do believe that we're running a business and I never want to lose to the same week last year. Cause that's embarrassing. And so, so if we're not selling enough for like today was rainy and it was slow, then I start thinking about who's a chef or who's a buyer that has said, Hey, if you're ever in a pinch, I can help you out. And so then I can make these decisions, really informed decisions on the fly and say, look, I need to move another couple hundred bucks before this week has hit my goal. And I can start sending those messages at market to make sure that I line up these deliveries on the way home from market. And so those are things, those are little tools. I mean, this is like you said, really micromanaging, but these are little tools for me to ensure that we get the dollars we need to hit the goals that we've set for ourselves. And again, you know, you've, you've described a system where, you know, from the start of your farm, you've set up a need to produce and a yeah. need to make that income work. And so I, I like that you have a system that helps you ensure that, gives you the feedback. You know, I talk a lot about management being this, this process of planning and then monitoring your performance. And then the most important piece, and the one that I think oftentimes gets left out, is controlling. It's yeah. bringing performance back in line with what the plan was supposed to be. So you have to know what you want to do, make the same amount of money we did last year at the, during this week. You've got to monitor, are, are we making that or not? And then if you're not doing it, you got to do something about it. And yeah. I think you've described, you've described a system that gives you the information and the feedback that you need in real time to be able to do something about it. And I think that's great. You're absolutely right. I don't want to be a passive player. I don't want to be a woe is me. Today was a bad market. I, I don't believe in things happening to me. I want to happen things. So, you know, one of the great ways that this plays in is when we're getting prepped for market, we've got a couple sort of crops or little endeavors, you might call them, that are not our core, okay? But they're things that we enjoy and if for some reason we're in a gap on crops, there are things that we'll sort of draw on. So we've got, we're blessed with great wildflowers on our farm. And we also have a great sort of wild black raspberry patch. And these are these types of things where, you know, and like little bunches of cut herbs. We don't always sell tons of them, but we know it rounds out the booth. If we know that we're way ahead from last year and it's 5.30 on Thursday night and we could go inside and make dinner or we could just keep pushing it a little bit more because we need to, we can look at where we're at on the week and that can inform, do we, do we take the time to go cut these wildflowers or do we say, we'll be fine without them. We're doing really well this week. Let's go enjoy a meal and call it a day. And I think that really helps us feel comfortable that we're not, we don't feel guilty when we take that take that time to relax or, you know, we're really close to the beach so we can go to the beach some nights. We don't feel guilty and wonder is this hampering our ability to achieve what we've set out to achieve. We know, okay, as of Thursday, we've beat this week last year. So everything at markets this weekend is gravy. So let's just get what we need to have for market. Let's not beat ourselves up. We'll leave at a reasonable time and we'll sell what we can sell. And I think that provides this sort of peace of mind um, you know, that we're doing what we need to do and that, and that we're doing a good job and that we need to take time and take a break and smell the roses, but not just do that sort of um, in an uninformed fashion. If we're behind like two weeks ago, 
you know, I was out of town at frozen ground in Vermont and, you know, my wife did a great job, but it was like, okay, we really need to make sure we sell a lot this week. Cause we had a killer week last year. You know, when I get back, I know I'm going to push it. I mean, I'm going to push it. We're going to just try and crank product out because we need to sell like it's our job to hit these goals. And so, yeah, I get off that plane, I get home and I'm like straight to the field trying to just literally crush it because that's what matters that week. But like last week we hit our goal, you know, before we even got to market on Friday morning. So we knew we had two days of great markets and everything we made was going to be gravy. So Thursday night, we're like, let's go out to dinner because this feels good. We need to celebrate these little mini victories all across the season. And we'll feel that much better going into markets this weekend. Awesome. Brian, thank you. With that, we're going to stop and take a break, get a word from our sponsors, do our little bit of making things work financially around here at the <laughs> podcast. And then we'll be right back with more from Brian Bates at Bear Creek Organic Farm in Petoskey, Michigan. The Farmer to Farmer podcast is made possible with the generous support of Vermont Compost Company, makers of living potting soils for organic growers since 1992. In the transplant greenhouse, all of your investment in plant material, heat, labor, and overhead depend absolutely on the performance of the media where you expect your plants to grow. And that media has a really hard job to do. Produce a healthy plant in just a few cubic centimeters of soil. When I started farming, I focused on getting the cheapest ingredients I could to make my own potting soil, and later on finding cheap potting soil already put together. But I found out what so many farmers have, that saving money on inputs doesn't always result in increased profits. Jennifer at Vermont Compost can tell story after story of customers who switched to less expensive options, but who have come back to Vermont Compost for the consistency and the quality of their potting soils. And even though it's not all about saving money, Vermont Compost Fall Pre-Buy Program can help you get what your plants need at the best price with the best shipping options. Don't miss out. Vermont Compost Fall Pre-Buy Program runs September 21st to December 21st. Taking care of growers by taking care of transplants since 1992. VermontCompost.com This week, the Farmer to Farmer podcast is brought to you by you, our listeners. And the nice thing about that is that I don't need to go on and on about it because the fact that you're here probably means that you already think that the Farmer to Farmer podcast is kind of cool. We'd love to have your support. One of the easiest ways is to use the link at farmertofarmerpodcast.com slash Amazon to do your shopping on Amazon.com. It doesn't cost you a penny more, and Amazon kicks a percentage of what you spend back to the show. You can also become a patron of the show by setting up a monthly donation to provide ongoing support for the behind-the-scenes efforts that you don't hear about but which make the show what it is. Plus, we've got a couple of cool gifts for you if you go this route. We also have an option to do a one-time donation at farmertofarmerpodcast.com slash donate. Or just keep listening, commenting, sharing, and reviewing. It's awesome that you're here, and I'm grateful for your participation in the podcast. Go to farmertofarmerpodcast.com slash donate for more information and all of the relevant links. Thank you so much for your support. And we're back with Brian Bates from Bear Creek Organic Farm in Petoskey, Michigan, Brian, over the break, you and I were talking about the job that you had in 2014 when you were getting started. Uh, you were working full time off the farm as the as the operation was getting going, and and how that informed some of the decisions that you guys were making about both production and marketing on your operation. Yeah, I mean, so the job I had was basically you know, January 2nd of 2014, I'm like, okay, I'm going to get a job and I want this to improve. So I walked into our local grocery co-op, which is called the Grain Train. 
Okay. I walked in a grocery co-op, not a huge store, not like some of the urban co-ops, but I just basically said, are you hiring? And they said, no, um, which I expected. And that's fine. It's a very desirable place to work. But as it turns out, they had a job that hadn't just hadn't posted yet. And so actually by the next day I was working there. <laughs> they were basically like, you're perfect. Come <laughs> on, you know, come help us. So I'm like, okay. And I was just a stalker. So in grocery stores, stockers just put stuff on the shelf. You know, they take the stuff from the back and put it on the shelf. And I was content with that, although it was certainly underperforming, one might say, from maybe my college degree or whatever you want to call it. But my intentions were different. One was to integrate myself. You know, I'm not from here. Integrate myself in the fabric of really the core of this sort of natural foods movement in Petoskey, right? So this is where everybody comes to get the organic stuff and the local milk and all that jazz. And the employees all sort of embrace that philosophy. But the other thing is I wanted to learn because I figured we're going to be the first certified organic farm in Petoskey and their produce section. I should step back. The grain train is actually a certified organic grocery co-op. That doesn't mean everything they sell is certified organic, but it doesn't mean they're going through a voluntary inspection to prove that they are certified to appropriately handle organic produce from truck delivery to the customer purchasing it. And as a result, that particular produce department, to ease their operation, decided that they were going to only stock organic produce. This seems really restrictive from a sort of business management standpoint to basically say, if it's not available organic, basically, we're not going to carry it. But that strong line, and I learned working there that that was a strong line. I learned that that was going to be a real advantage because we were going to be the first certified organic produce farm in Petoskey. There were a couple other ones from a little further away that sold some stuff. But if I did my job and I produced things the way I hoped to produce them, I knew that this was a market that was ripe for the taking. And so that I went there because I wanted to learn as it turns out, I really enjoyed working there and I really enjoyed the people. But my initial goal was to learn as much about how grocery works. You know, it's kind of this mysterious place where the vast majority of Americans buy their food. And I knew we weren't going to have a CSA. So I thought, okay, we're not going to have an on-farm market. We're not going to have a CSA. We're going to go to farmer's markets. Restaurants are very seasonal up here. I should probably explore this grocery co-op that has has doubled down their commitment to organic in a way that I hadn't really seen before. So I was a stalker and I did that for several months. And then they posted an internal posting for a receiving manager, which was a new job at the store. It was not a big grocery co-op. So it was a new job at the store and I applied for that and I got that job. And so then for the next year and a half, I worked as the receiving manager at that store and to say that that was not one of the most important parts of our farm getting started would be such an understatement because as receiving manager, basically I handled all incoming freight and deliveries from every supplier for every aspect of the store and met every delivery driver or every farmer or every you know food producer and handled every single invoice and managed all that data entry on the back end. So I spent, you know, hours a week entering in produce costs to our data system. And then, you know, you could go out on the shelf and see what you sold it for. So I became really, really familiar with sort of retail speak for one things like 
margin management and shrink, um, you know, shrink being things that you have to toss out, margin management being what the store actually makes, you know, labor cost per hour, sales per hour, all these things that have really informed our business, but they also informed me the life that grocery stores live in. And that if I want to sell to them, I, I need to sort of understand, just like people talk about, if you want to sell to a chef, you need to think about what they're going to do with it or how they're going to use it, how they're going to celebrate that. Well, grocery stores are a little different because they're not, they're really just a middleman and they're just supplying what consumers want or what consumers think they want. And so those manage, those managers jobs is, is just to literally order product and in the appropriate quantity for the appropriate price and put it on the shelf at the appropriate time for the customer. And when you break that down, it really provides some clarity in the world that they live in. You know, if you have a couple extra of something, that's not going to excite a a produce buyer the same way it might your local farm to table chef, because that produce buyer really needs consistency on the shelf. And so, and that's the world they live in is it needs to be consistent out of stocks are the enemy in grocery. If something is out of stock on the shelf, you know, you think you go to the store to buy milk. If that store doesn't have milk, they have fundamentally failed their job. And so as a producer, this is really important. And I watched a lot of local growers really struggle with this, that a produce buyer is buying from you, but each time they buy a product from you, it is very inconvenient for them. Because unless your product comes with a barcode in a standard measured unit, the way that they order things from California, then it's inconvenient. And I see so many stores that they print their own barcodes for local producers and they're having to weigh variable weight items. It's very clunky. And when their general manager is saying, hey, look, you need to boost your sales per labor hour. Well, what's the first thing on the chopping block? all the things that take extra labor. So I'm I'm sharing this because I think the grocery stores are a widely untapped market for the local food movement. And these are really, really critical elements to understand. So out of stocks are horrible. Consistency is critical. and, And packaging matters. I mean, to me, I know some people want to avoid packaging because it's plastic and it's use of precious resources. And I totally, I totally feel you. I, I'm, I'm, we're birds of the same feather. But here's the reality. Everybody's buying their salad greens at the store in a plastic container, either a bag or a clamshell anyways. So the best thing I think local food producers can do is make an equally well designed and packaged local product that we all know is going to taste better and be literally thousands of miles fresher. But if you can achieve that in a way that is not inconvenient for that produce buyer and in a way and in a form and shape and price that is not that different than what consumers already buy, then you, I believe, have achieved one of the holy grails of production which is what I'm trying to do. What we're trying to do is we're trying to normalize local food. So I don't want, I mean, I, I like the ugly fruit and vegetable movement. I think that's a great thing on a macro scale, 
But on a micro scale, when we're putting our name on it, I don't want to be a part of the ugly fruit movement, right? I want, I don't want people to say, oh, it's okay that your spring mix had some grass in it. It's local. That, that, that just gets me. Like, I don't want the more expensive local product to be inferior in a customer's mind. And even if that one customer says, it's okay, it's local. I mean, they're not wrong, but if you can normalize the shopping experience, your market gets a lot bigger. And so one of the things I learned at this natural foods co-op is that in the natural foods movement, local foods movement of which, you know, we're all a part of is that there's, there's this great breakdown of your core customers, your inner periphery customers, your outer periphery customers, and then sort of your extremities. And basically you're never going to sell to your extremities, right? They're never going to buy local food. The outer periphery, which is maybe, you know, 40% is not really looking to change their habits and they're really on a tight budget. They're not, you know, grocery habits die hard. Your core doesn't care about the grass in the spring mix, but that inner periphery, that's the sweet spot. That's the spot that these natural grocers are trying to sell to. And that's the spot that I wanted to help normalize. I wanted to say, you want to buy organic spring mix. Right now you buy earthbound. But for the same price, I'm going to sell you Bear Creek spring mix in the same five ounce container with a nice splashy label for the same price. And better yet, it's not just going to be equivalent. It's going to keep longer in your refrigerator and it's going to taste better when you eat it because that's how much better local is. And, and that value proposition is what we've been pursuing. And what I sort of, that was my main takeaway from working at that co-op was basically it's on me. I'm running a business. It's on me to make it as easy as possible for a customer to buy our product in a way that, that is not unfamiliar, but that supports the ideas that they want to support. Many people like the idea of shopping at a farmer's market, but what is stranger than showing up to this pop-up food circus for four hours on Saturday morning, and then it's gone. You know, what if you need something midweek? You shouldn't be, you shouldn't have to suffer not getting good local product on Tuesday because you forgot to buy it on Saturday. And so the real advantage, I believe, you know, sure, wholesaling it is sometimes considered like you're losing part of your money that you can make. That may be true, but my product is well lit, refrigerated, seen by a thousand people a day, seven days a week from 7 a.m. until 10 p.m at that store 365 days a year. And not only that, I can put whatever information on my label I want to excite people about buying our product. And if that, if you don't truly believe that that service of seven days a week, well-lit refrigerated in front of a thousand core customers, if that's not worth giving up 30% of what you can sell it for at market, then just keep going to market. Because wholesale, it's it's a back and forth. You need to work for that buyer and that buyer needs to work for you. But at the end of the day, we're all just middlemen getting customers the product they want in the way they want for the price they want. And I think 
that doesn't work for everything. There's plenty of crops that we don't wholesale. So the math may not add up for something, but for a lot of things, when you actually break it down, the money's there, the volume is solid, and the customer buy-in gets even better. Because if we're just a small farm with no CSA, we basically rely on social media for people to know who we are, and then the grocery co-op for people to be able to buy it. And I, that's the deal. Like That's our value proposition is we're saying to our customers, you can get this stuff from us at market. But if you can't make it because you happen to have a job like the rest of America and you can't come Friday morning, I think that's a crazy time for a market. But if you can't come Friday morning to market, you shouldn't be penalized for that. You can go to the store and buy it. And so that's one of the things we've done is we've used the packaging as a billboard to market ourselves. We reach our same customers. We're selling to the same customers at market as we're selling to at the store. And, and so I love that. Because I love when somebody comes to market and says, oh, I've been buying your stuff at the grain train. We say, great. What have you been enjoying? Because we don't say, oh, did you know you can get it for 25 cents less here at market? That's not, they're so excited to share with us that story. And we want to create really positive associations with that. And the same goes for if it's a negative experience. If somebody says to us, hey, just so you know, I bought some of your radish microgreens at the grain train and they, they did not taste right. And I'll say, oh my gosh, thank you so much for the feedback. Do you still have the package? Can you tell me what the lot code is? I'll be in touch with that produce manager to make sure that they're rotating stock appropriately. And so we have that feedback loop. Um, and by and large, it's been all positive. And I think one of the interesting things is I went in because I knew what I knew that pro grocery buyers love a, a low price because anytime they can make margin, that's what they make their living off of. Well, and that's how they're evaluated. It's not just that's what they make the living off of. That's that's the fundamental bottom line. I don't care whether you're in a natural food store, the hippiest food co-op in the country, or in a conventional setting where local and organic doesn't matter. It does, you know, that's that's the measurement. That's the metric that people are using to to talk about performance. One of the things we did was I really wanted them to buy our stuff. You know, I worked there, but that doesn't mean I had an in like anybody else. It needed to add up for them. In some ways, that's the beauty of the level playing field of the grocery store. I mean, a chef, you can build a good relationship and rapport with that chef, and they'll start to be like, I don't care what the price is. Everything you bring is beautiful. You're my farmer. And that's great if you're that farmer. But the grocery store is the jungle, man. I mean, if somebody comes in with a better product at a better price, you're yesterday's news. And that's just life. And so, I like how competitive it is because I think it challenges me as a business operator. So one of the things we did is we wanted to sell clamshell greens at a wholesale price that was a little lower than what I was comfortable with, but I, I felt like that was the price point that was going to let them take a chance on me. Okay. So call it what you want, you know, an investment in your future or whatever, but margin matters a lot. So they were actually doubling the price of what we sold it to them for as what they were selling on the shelf. And that is really high. Normally in produce, I think you'd be more like 30% margin. So they're doing 50% margin on clamshells that we were selling of like kale and chard and springman. At first, my feeling was, oh, I was really thinking you're going to sell that for less because I wanted the customer to get a great price. But I'll let them roll with it because that's their job. And if they saw margin to have, then that's great. Well, margin is one thing, but shrink 
is the other thing. And shrink is how much stuff a grocery store has to toss because it's, it's expired. Either it doesn't look right or it's past its date. And so shrink is a real bottom line killer because anything you throw away is something that you already bought. And so long story short, we sold this product for eight months of the year. We had this stuff on the shelf and it was like uncomfortably low for me and they were making a crushing margin on it. But when it came time for us to meet in December or January for the next year, we discussed this and I said, well, you know, I'd really like to see us raise that price because we really want to make more money per unit. And if it's working for you, hopefully that'd be worth it to you. And what they said was, we've probably bought thousands of clamshells from you so far this season, and we've made great margin on all of them. But more importantly, we have tossed less than five containers this year of your product. And we routinely get full cases of earthbound lettuce from California that's DOA, that they literally have to toss upon arrival. That value to them was worth so much. We almost doubled our wholesale cost on some products because they were willing to take a lower margin on the shelf, knowing that they didn't need to build in an insurance factor to protect against potential shrinkage. So whereas a regular margin might be, let's say, 33%, they could run a 25% margin on our product because they knew they weren't going to be tossing nearly as much. And that's been a really powerful relationship to understand that they live in a different world, and so these things matter. And from day one, everything we've sold has had a barcode. It's been standard sizes. And the market research for this is not rocket science. If you want to sell greens or any product to a store, the best thing about stores, unlike restaurants, is everything's on display. Right, you walk in, look at what they've got. Yeah. So if you've got, you know, if you're listening to this and you're like, I want to sell to my store, and I've always thought that they might buy stuff, you can literally hop in your car, walk in that store, write down the price and package size of whatever product it is you want to sell, figure that they're making 30% on it, plug that in, you know, see what that cost ends up being and say, wow, actually, that's a better price. You know, we found we sell zucchini wholesale to a store and cucumbers wholesale to the stores for more than we sell it for at market. Because at market, people think in terms of units. But at stores, people buy in terms of pounds. So, right. so you have this real opportunity where sometimes the math ends up working out way in your favor. I mean, people don't pay a lot for an individual pepper at market. I don't grow peppers mainly for that reason. <laughs> but people don't pay a lot for an individual pepper. If you said this pepper costs $4, somebody would be like, well, you're pretty proud of those peppers. But they don't, maybe they don't realize that right now they're paying five ninety nine dollars a pound. And if they get a half pound pepper, they're already paying $3. They just didn't realize it. So it's one of those beautiful arrangements where if you crunch your numbers and you do some math, you might find a lot of opportunities where not only are you not taking a price hit, you're actually reaching more customers and getting your name out to more people in a way that they're more accustomed to. And it's just yours for the taking. And so I think that's really critical. And if, and if anybody's curious, you know, barcodes are really easy. They're just like web domains. So you just buy them from GS1 
is the website and they manage the global database of barcodes. And I think we bought a hundred barcodes for, I mean, maybe it was a couple hundred bucks to start. And then each year you pay like a renewal fee, just like you would for a website. And I think it's like a hundred bucks, but for that hundred dollars, no grocery store has to go through that extra labor to make it sellable on their end. Everything we sell them scans at the checkout counter, just like every other product. I think the other advantage that has for you guys, when you've got the UPC codes or if you get the PLUs on your twist ties or whatever it is that you're doing, is that when, now this isn't an issue at your local food co-op, but if you're in a conventional grocery store and they've got, you know, organic kale and conventional kale, if you want to make sure that they're actually recording sales of organic kale instead of just kale in general. And having those PLUs or the UBC codes or whatever it takes to make that a reality, to get them to actually, to get that data recorded correctly when they sell your product is a real key element of them, again, getting the right metrics. Oh yeah, organic's worth it. Oh yeah, local is worth it. Chris, you hit a key element. I mean, we're getting into sort of the nuts and bolts of retail marketing, but I was the receiving manager. I was responsible for all data entry for that entire store. You want to know what products were the most routinely inputted incorrectly? It was all of the local products that came in variable weight that didn't have their own barcode. So there were times, I mean, this is routine. There were times where the store would be selling, let's say, beets or cabbages, you know, topped beets or bulk cabbages from two or three different farms. And, and or maybe California. And if they all have the same PLU, then how can that buyer go check their sales report to say, what was the sell-through of Bear Creek's cabbages last week? I want to make sure I order the same amount. If the data is not there and it's not easy for them to process, then it gets really hard because they basically have on the back end, basically they have computers that are telling them brand names and suppliers of products or if it's a generic and you don't want to live in the land of generics because generics are just all of it in one hodgepodge, but anything that comes with a barcode, they can look up supplier bear Creek and run a sales report on all the bear Creek products. And I, and then that way they know, like you said, exactly the sell through. They're not wondering what percentage of arugula microgreens came from bear Creek. It's like, it's all from bear Creek. And we can see that really easily. So you're absolutely right. It makes it a lot easier. I can tell you from a data entry standpoint, it's a lot easier. And you, you, it's, that value is carried throughout the value chain. You know, it's easier for you. It's easier for the buyer. It's easier for the customer. It's easier for the cashier. Every single part of it's easier. And for a hundred bucks, you can have barcodes for all of your products. And I think that's really key. And that's why we are able, you know, I didn't say this earlier, but we sell 95% of our farm's dollars in sales are within 11 miles of our farm. And our town is 6,000 people. So to be doing that means that we have to be selling to people in more traditional market channels. Everybody can't be part of a CSA. Everybody can't get to farmer's market. And so this is a really critical piece to reach people where they're at. Right. All right. So with that, Brian, we're going to turn to the lightning round here. And okay. so what's your favorite tool on the farm? Yeah, that's a great question. I think my favorite tool has to be the calculator. It seems silly, but I think 
that's the only, I mean, it's not the only reason, obviously there's lots of variables, but that's perhaps one of the key reasons that we are where we are in under three years. You know, why I can say that I'm comfortably netting for my own income, you know, 50 grand from our farm, no funny business in under three years. That's, that's why, because it's pencil to paper. My wife laughs at me. I mean, any back of the envelope is totally fair game in our house for me to be <laughs> doing some math. And, and, you know, people laugh. I carry, I carry around the scientific calculator that I've had since high school. And I, anytime I go anywhere, I bring it with me. We were at frozen ground. I think somebody was laughing at me. Elliot Coleman looks at me. He's like, what is that? And I'm like, just in case I need to do some quick math, you know? So I just, I just always carry the calculator because it, it just helps me. It, that's, that's my mental check. You know, if somebody's telling me something that sounds really exciting, then I can do a quick check of, does that line up with what I think to be true? Oh my gosh, look at that price per pound. Okay. Maybe I'll dig into this or, you know, maybe that margin, you know, if I'm at a store, I'll pull out my phone and be like, Whoa, there's an untapped opportunity in cucumbers, you know, and I can do that really quick with a calculator. So I'm going to stick with calculator as the, the most important tool on our farm. Awesome. And then setting the money part aside, what's your favorite crop to grow? My first love was garlic. And anytime I, anytime I answer this question with something other than garlic, I feel like I'm cheating on garlic. You know, that was just, <laughs> I feel guilty. You know, gar, garlic, it all goes back to, I can tell you very vividly, garlic was one of my first, if not my first on-farm experience because it was fall semester, Penn State. I went with my roommate to Tate Farm. We'd go there. They were in garlic time getting prepped for planting and we were volunteers. Now that I'm on this end, I understand why we were doing what we were doing, but we were just sitting there trimming roots and splitting cloves until we couldn't feel our fingers and just listening to an old beat up stereo in this big, big barn. And I, I think, you know, it's like you never forget your first kiss. I think you just don't forget that kind of an experience. And, and since then, garlic's been a really great crop. And it's interesting too, because garlic tests my patience. I'm a very impatient person. I'm not inherently impatient, but I just want results quickly. Maybe that's the same thing. I think there's a difference, but my wife says, you're very, you know, you want results like immediately. And I do. And that's why me and microgreens get along so well. But I think garlic, it, it grounds me. It's the only crop that grows under the ground that I grow. I like seeing everything, but I trust garlic to grow. I think there's something beautiful about planting it in the fall and watching it emerge in the spring. I think, I just think garlic has this really unique life on the farm that is so different than the rest of them. And, um, and it takes time and you cure it. And I think it just, it makes me feel really connected to the ground that we have. And it's the one day a year where we really invite a bunch of people over to come help harvest. And there's community around that. And then we hang them in our pole barn, our honeybee hotel. It's like our, where we put honeybees over the winter, but we hang them like garlic chandeliers. And then after that's hung, that's when we schedule all of our like farm tours and potlucks. So we have had, since we've hung it this year, I think four separate meals have been hosted, you know, for 20 to a hundred people in this barn. That's just got all this garlic above you. And I think it just, that, that to me is just really a beautiful crop. 
I love it. And finally, if you could go back in time and tell your beginning farmer self one thing, what would it be? So I have two answers to this. One, I'm practically obligated to say, and that is, listen to my wife. And that sounds funny, like happy wife, happy life, and all that jazz. But she's been right on a lot of things in ways that I certainly didn't give her the credit for. And I don't know if either of us realized just how right she was. And, you know, the biggest example by far is microgreens. I was super on the fence about doing it. I didn't think we'd have a market for it. We didn't have enough fancy chefs in my mind. And it took me going to the Dane County farmer's market in the winter and talking to growers who are producing microgreens and saying, yeah, yeah, it's a good, you know, good gig in the winter. And I came home and I was like, I think I'm going to grow microgreens. And my wife was like, oh, really? You know, you just came to this idea on your own. Like somehow this is an original thought. And I said, I'm just going to bring a few to market. And we sold out. And she was like, I told you to bring more. And then I brought a few more. And then it's just become, it's our single biggest crop. And she was so right that people would love it. She's really, she spends a lot of time in the kitchen. She's really in touch, I think, with people that want to cook clean, real food. And she maybe was more dialed in to that, to that market demographic than I realized. And then the other reason I need to listen to my wife is she is a graphic design professor at the community college here. And so when it comes to marketing and social media and our, our branding and our packaging, you know, I have a lot of input on the content. But she's really the mastermind in terms of the palette of colors, how people are going to perceive the product. And I have disagreed with her on some of her decisions, but many of them have been wild successes. And that credit is all due to her. So, so that, is, that is one thing that I would tell myself is you know, to, to trust that, trust her. And, and even though she wasn't by my side at all these conferences, she has a lot of valuable input. And that that other perspective, especially in a two-person operation, is is really critical. The other the other part that I would tell my beginning farmer self, and I'm glad that I've done it, but I would tell anybody else, is is basically when in doubt, go. Or when on the fence, go. And what I mean for go is if you see a farm in your area is having a field day and you're kind of curious, but you're kind of hoping to go out to dinner, but maybe you should go because it only comes up once a year, go. And if there's a conference that looks interesting, but it seems like, oh my gosh, $250 plus I have to drive there and who's going to watch the farm? You have to go. Because where, are the, where else can you go for free in the case of so many field days or to a conference for a couple hundred dollars and immediately be immersed in your tribe who's sharing all of this information? You know, when you go to a conference like Moses, there's probably tens of thousands of years of collective farming experience in that lunchroom when you walk in there. And so to not spend $200 to be in that and let that information work for you, it, it, it's not like you're not going to make it, but it's just going to really slow your learning curve. And that's why I think you've done a really powerful thing with the Farmer to Farmer podcast and JM and Mike Kilpatrick with these Facebook groups, you know, Market Gardening Success and Four Season Growing and Lynn Bozinski with, you know, Growing for Market and all these different conferences. These are really, really powerful tools that as a collective, we're really lucky to have, but you need to subscribe and you need to go and you need to 
you know, sometimes take that. I, I mean, I lived in Northern Michigan. I drove 15 hours to get to that Practical Farmers of Iowa conference, but I knew there was a finance workshop and I knew Paul and Sandy Arnold were going to be there. And that was enough for me to make the trip worth it. And I think that that money was money so well spent and that to, to trick, you know, to convince yourself that maybe it won't be worth it is to really shortchange what you might be able to learn. Awesome. Brian, thanks so much for being on the show today. This has been fantastic. Thanks so much for having me, Chris. All right. So wrapping things up here, I'll say again that this is episode 86 of the Farmer to Farmer podcast. And you can find the notes for the show at farmertofarmerpodcast.com by looking on the episodes page or just searching for Bates. That's B-A-T-E-S. Don't forget, you can support the show by going to farmertofarmerpodcast.com slash donate. Whether you're donating to the show at farmertofarmerpodcast.com slash donate, shopping at Amazon through the link at farmertofarmerpodcast.com slash Amazon, or showing us your love by leaving us a review on iTunes or Stitcher, your support matters. Thank you so much. If you enjoy the podcast, I'll bet you'd like being on my email list, The Flying Rutabaga. Please check that out at farmertofarmerpodcast.com or purplepitchfork.com. Thank you for listening. Be safe out there and keep the tractor running.